Good morning. Thanks for uh, coming and worshiping with us this morning. If we have not met, my name is Jason. I'm part of the leadership team here at uh, Edgewood. Pastor Brian is away this weekend. He is uh, at a family funeral, but he will be back with us next weekend when we jump back into our series on mission about discipleship. And, and so this week, as I was praying about uh, a, a message that could uh, springboard us back into the On Mission series. I was brought to Matthew chapter 7. So if you brought your Bible this morning, that is where we are going to be. This is a section of Scripture that God keeps drawing me, me back to. And I think one of the reasons that I keep getting pulled back to Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is this. There is confusion in our culture over what a Christian is or what the criteria is for a Christian. So what does a Christian believe or not believe? What does a, a Christian do or not do? And these are important questions, and it's just two important questions. And so let me see if I can illustrate with a piece of fruit as to their importance. So my middle daughter, Addison, turned six in January, and my youngest son, Eli, turns four later this month. It is not a challenge for those two kids to blow through a four-cup bowl of strawberries. They love strawberries. And so if I had a strawberry with us this morning, and we were all looking at it, how would we know that a strawberry is a strawberry? And the answer is that there are distinguishing marks, right? It's red, it has seeds, it's shaped like a heart. When you, when you take a bite out of a strawberry, there's this strawberry-y taste to a strawberry. So there's marks, there's features, there's certain makeup that causes us to look at a strawberry and identify it as a strawberry. And the same is true for the Christian. Why is this important? Because according to a Pew survey, 70.6% of Americans claim to be Christian. And listen, a nation that is confused about its morals and its values doesn't have a 70.6% Christian population. Clearly, there are some people who claim to be Christian who are not pressing their Christianity up against the person who is uh, the, the, um, the one that we worship in Christianity. They aren't pressing their Christianity up against Christ. And so what we have here in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus identifying for us what a Christ follower looks like, what a Christ follower does. So we're here in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you're not familiar with that title, this is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And there's three groups here in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is talking to. The first is his disciples. That's the primary group that Jesus has in mind. Then there's a second group. This group is the crowds. These are the people who are curious about Jesus. They've seen him do his miracles, but they're just not sure if they want to be committed disciples. There's a third group that's here as well. It's a subset of this second group of the crowds. These are the religious leaders. This is the group of people who pretends to have an interest in what Jesus says, but really 
Jesus is contradicting their message to the culture, and it's ruining their livelihood, so they want to kill him. And now his message to all three groups is the same, and it's this. If you're going to be a follower of mine, this is what it looks like. And in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he lays it out. So we're in Matthew 7. We are joining Jesus near the end, actually, of Matthew 7. And so it's here. He is landing the plane. And he's just explained the character of his disciples in Matthew 5, 1 through 12. So we're going to take a 36,000-foot view here of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Now, in verses 14 through 16, he illustrates how those who live out that character affect the world. In verses 17 through 20, he talks about his disciples needing to have a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the religious leaders of the day. And then he follows that up in verses 21 through 48, where he provides examples of what that righteousness looks like. And then in all of chapter 6, and in the first part of chapter 7, he gives specific instructions about giving, praying, fasting, materialism, worry, wrongly judging others, and prayer. And then he caps all of that off with the golden rule in chapter 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Our text is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus' message is this. You cannot hear what I've just said to you and stay where you're at. You must make a choice. There is no middle ground. If you're going to be a follower of mine and be a true disciple, you must choose the narrow path, you must reject false prophets, and do the will of the Father. So let's read Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 27. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear uh, bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. For every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Let's pray, and we will dive into our text. Heavenly Father, we come before you and 
God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you now for this opportunity to worship you by hearing your word, by applying your word, by interpreting, God, what you have to say here. And so, God, we just ask that you'd be worshiped, that you'd be honored. These aren't, these aren't my words. It's Jesus that's speaking here in this text. And so, God, we ask that your Holy Spirit, God, would use these words, that you would realign our thinking, that you would help us to apply this text, that as we leave this place this morning, that we would leave here having worshiped you, and God, uh, uh, that we would leave here looking more like Jesus Christ. So, Father, use this time for your glory and yours alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So according to a Gallup study from 2013, worldwide, only 13% of employees were engaged at work. That's 87% of employees or approximately 900 million people worldwide who are disengaged at work. In the United States and Canada, the numbers were a little bit different in that only 72% of people, of employees rather, were disengaged. Now, one of the biggest factors in employee engagement is connection. Do employees connect with the organization's core purpose, with its leadership principles, with its culture, and with their colleagues? See, the myth is that employee engagement is about pay. If you want a dedicated employee, you need to pay them more. And while that may be true for some, According to surveys, that's not true for most employees. The path to a committed employee is how well they connect to colleagues and to the organization as a whole. Well, here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is calling his followers to wholehearted commitment to himself. And in many ways, an employee's commitment to an organization is similar to a Christ follower's commitment to Christ. For example, your commitment to Christ will no doubt lessen if his purpose isn't your purpose. His purpose is to see his kingdom advanced. If that's not your purpose too, your motivation for following him will probably decrease. And you can see this clearly at the end of Matthew chapter 7. And so what Jesus is is doing is he is inviting those listening, so that's all of us here today, and he's inviting us to wholehearted commitment, to true discipleship. That's the invitation. And so if we accept the invitation, what are we in for? Well, let's find out. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus talks about two gates and two ways. And we're going to explore those for a moment. It is such an incredible difference traveling on Interstate 74 with the new bridges. Now, you probably knew this. I find this kind of trivia fascinating, so I'm going to share it with you. Did you know that just one span of the new bridges is bigger than the other two spans combined? That's incredible. So now if you're traveling to Iowa or you're traveling to Illinois, you have four lanes of traffic to use. It's it's one of those projects that 
for me, I look at and I think, how did we do this before? It's, a, it's an amazing thing for me. Now, if you are traveling from Iowa to Illinois, and uh, you're, on the, you're on the interstate, if you want to exit at Avenue of the Cities, you have to be intentional about your exit. You can't just stay on the interstate and it becomes Avenue of the Cities. You must intentionally merge off of the interstate, uh, the three lanes of interstate, rather, and onto the one-lane exit ramp for Avenue of the Cities. There are over 70,000 vehicles that travel through the Quad Cities on Interstate 74 every day. The vast majority of them are not exiting at Avenue of the Cities. If they're headed into Illinois, probably they are just passing through and making their way to 280. So when Jesus says, enter the narrow gate, he is calling for an intentional decision to get off the interstate and journey down a less traveled path. How do I know that? Look at verse 14. For the gate is narrow. So the idea here is that you don't have to look at Interstate 74 for very long before you realize it's an interstate. It's an interstate. It's not as easy to look at Avenue of the Cities and and do that for for, uh, that particular street. You have to look for Avenue of the Cities. And so Jesus is saying the narrow gate isn't easy to, or isn't as easy to identify. It needs to be sought out. The wide gate, on the other hand, that one's easy to see. It's easy to identify, and it's even easier to travel down. And so when Jesus says that the way is wide, what he means is it's, it's spacious, it's comfortable, there's no congestion. The narrow way, well, it's small, it's constricted, it's not obvious, which is why it has to be found and it's bumpy. Now, there's one very important caveat to the wide and narrow ways. So if you were traveling on Interstate 74 and were headed into Iowa, and you stayed on 74, it it eventually becomes what? What does Interstate 74 become? Interstate 80, right? So if you ride the curve and you start heading west on Interstate 80, did you know you could take I-80 all the way to San Francisco? I didn't know that. I learned that this week uh, in working on the message. Now, let's say you take Interstate 80 all the way to San Francisco, which is where I-80 stops. But let's say your car doesn't stop. Let's say, let's say your car just keeps going, right? Eventually, you're what? You're off the interstate. And if your car is going to keep going west, where does it end up? In the Pacific Ocean. It ends up in the Pacific Ocean. See, here's the the, the thing. The interstate ends, the car doesn't. And what Jesus is talking about here is is this. When he's communicating about the wide way and the narrow way, they eventually end. You don't. You don't. You never end. You keep going. And when the way ends, you will either move forward into life or you will fall into destruction. 
And this life and destruction never end. It's continual. It's eternal. And so Jesus offers you and me a choice. We can take the wide, comfortable, spacious way and we can follow it all the way to destruction. Or we can search out the narrow way, the hard way, and follow it all the way to eternal life. Friends, you can pick the way. You cannot pick the consequences. Wholehearted commitment to Jesus Christ, true discipleship, means choosing the narrow way. The invitation to join Jesus on the narrow way stands for as long as you live. The problem is, you don't know when your life will end. There is no middle ground. There is no middle path, just two paths. One that leads to eternal life and one that leads to eternal destruction. Which path are you going to choose? Which path are you going to choose? If you're not already on the narrow path, let's start that journey today. It's going to be bumpy, but the reward is worth it. So the first thing that we see about true discipleship is that it involves walking down the narrow way. Here's the next thing that Jesus wants us to see. True disciples are on guard against false prophets. True disciples are on guard against false prophets. Many of you, uh, if you're a football fan, you know that this is the last weekend of the regular season, which means... That Monday could be a really hard day for several coaches and executives around the league. You see, the Monday after the regular season is often called Black Monday. And it's the day coaches and executives from high-expectation, low-performing teams tend to get fired. So let's say that I show up at a team's front office and I dress the part and I look like a coach. And I'm interviewing for one of these openings. And let's say I use my little bit of football knowledge. Thank you, John Madden. And that, that knowledge gets me an interview with team officials and players. And, and no matter how winsome my personality is, once the interview moves past chit-chat into the specifics of football, they are going to know that I'm a fraud. Why? Because everyone in that room would have a greater knowledge of football than me. So Jesus says in verse 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And I'll just tell you right now, the ravenous wolf coach in me, I'd pick the Packers and we would lose every game. I'm just telling you. <laughs> this is where, friends, this is where having the tools to study the Bible really come in handy. See, if we read this text and we don't slow down to study it, 
we might read this verse, who come to you in sheep's clothing and think that a false prophet is going to come dressed like a sheep. But we've got to pump the brakes. You see, a shepherd often dressed in clothes made from the sheep's wool. And so the warning then is not to look out for a sheep who is dressed like a sheep, but is preaching and teaching heresy to the other sheep. The warning is to be on the lookout for someone the sheep would naturally gravitate to. The shepherd. The shepherd. And notice one other thing about this false prophet. The sheep aren't seeking out the false prophet. They come to you. They come to you. So you have a false prophet who has disguised himself as a shepherd. And his message is going to sound just like a shepherd's. One commentator describes the false prophet this way. They say this man's preaching is all right in that he says nothing that is untrue. The problem stems from what he doesn't say. He says many right things, but also leaves out some indispensable points of belief. And that makes him exceedingly dangerous. He is truly a wolf in sheep's clothing. His preaching has another telltale characteristic. He says nothing that is offensive to the natural man. His message comforts and soothes and never warns of judgment. He wants everyone to speak well of him. He's like the false prophets in Jeremiah's time, of whom the prophet said, They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. They speak according to Isaiah, smooth things and prophesy illusions. There's nothing to make anyone uneasy, but rather only things that make people feel good, content, and falsely assured. They characterize anyone who preaches otherwise as negative. So verse 16 gives us the clue to discovering a false prophet. Jesus says, you will recognize them by their fruits. So you remember our chat earlier about strawberries? How do we know a strawberry is a strawberry, right? It's red, seeds, Looks like a heart, tastes like a strawberry. It has distinguishing marks, and the false prophet has distinguishing marks too. But their marks aren't in outward appearance. Their marks are in action. The fruit of the false prophet will be the thing that betrays them in the end. One commentator put it like this, if true disciples take note of what these false prophets do and refuse to be charmed by their false words, they will recognize them for what they are. And we should probably understand their teaching also as part of their fruits, for their teaching proceeds from what they are, and it is by our words that we will be condemned or justified on judgment day. Friends, you are not neutral. Something is going or someone is going to disciple you. You have to be on guard of the false prophet. Throughout history, we have never had a shortage of false prophets. 
your ability to identify, to be on guard against, to be aware of, or to beware of false prophets will come down to your knowledge of God. And the primary place he reveals himself is through his word, the Bible. Everything that, he, that God wants you to know about him is found there. Here's the good news. We have more access to the word of God today than we've had at any other time in history. English versions of the Bible can be found in both paper and digital versions. If you are looking for a version, I recommend the English Standard Version. If you need a reading plan, you can follow the Edgewood reading plan. You can find it on the Edgewood app if you're uh, looking for one. Maybe a next step is taking your Bible reading to the next level. So let me throw a couple of terms your way to help make this case. So knowledge is defined as the expertise and skill acquired by an individual through his experiences and education. Understanding is a psychological process related to a person, an object, a situation, or a message, which requires an individual to think and to use concepts to deal with. It is the awareness of the connection between pieces of information that are presented and has a deeper level than knowing, and in fact is essential in order to put knowledge to good use. We want to help you take and, and, and bring together knowledge and understanding and so uh, beginning February, uh, the first Sunday in February, we are doing a, a six-week study at 9 a.m. on the basics of studying the Bible. We're going to take some Right Now Media uh, videos and uh, also going to uh, talk through some different things. And so if you're looking for the next step from Bible reading to Bible study, then uh, this would be a great ca- uh, class for you to be a part of. And again, it starts in February at uh, 9 a.m. So we've seen true disciples walk on the narrow way and they are on guard against false prophets. Here's a third facet of true discipleship. A true disciple does the will of the Father. A true disciple does the will of the Father. Declaring something, or declaring yourself rather, to be something that you really aren't isn't new. In Judges 12, 4 through 7, we read about a Bible between the Gileadites and the Ephraimites. When the Gileadites would war with the Ephraimites, sometimes Ephraimites would pretend to be Gileadites to prevent capture. And so, knowing this, the Gileadites developed a password to detect Ephraimites. And the password was Shibboleth. And when Gileadites suspected someone to be an Ephraimite, they asked them to say that word. And the reason why they picked that word is because Ephraimites couldn't pronounce the sh sound of the word. So they would say Sibboleth. Thus, the mispronunciation would make it obvious as to who they are, and that would lead to their dismay and demise. I don't know if it's ever been easier to look like a Christian here in the United States. Certainly one way to do it is to learn our vocabulary. But another way to do it is simply to declare yourself to be one. 
Like I mentioned earlier, 70% of Americans in a Pew survey said they're a Christian. One survey that I, I read said the actual number is probably closer to 5 to 7%. Friends, that was in 2011. There's a third way uh, to uh, uh, disguise yourself as a Christian. It's to have the same concerns that we have about social issues. And then one, one, one more way is to come from a line of respectable Christians or even better, come from pastors, missionaries, or ministry workers. So in verse 21, Jesus makes clear that there are some who believe that they are Christians they believe the right things. Notice they, they call Jesus Lord, Lord. What's, what's that about? What's that about? So the term Lord can be used as a polite title, such as sir. It can be used to uh, identify the owner of something. But here it's a reference to majesty. It's a reference to divinity. divinity. Jesus is claiming to have an intimate knowledge of God because he's God incarnate and is saying that there are people who will claim to speak, to prophesy on God's behalf and people who will cast out demons and do mighty works all in the name of God. But even though they claim to represent God They don't really know him at all. And in verse 23, Jesus claims, I never knew you. In other words, he doesn't recognize them as they claim to be. It is a total rejection. But we have to notice, it isn't a rejection for occasional wrongdoing. Look at the rest of verse 23. Jesus says, depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. This condemnation is not for an occasional sin. It is for consistent wrongdoing. Lawlessness is basically the rejection of the law of God. Jesus says in verse 21, The one who enters the kingdom of heaven is the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Listen, you cannot habitually refuse to submit to the law of God and expect to enter the kingdom of heaven. Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way. Verses 21 through 23 are a dreadful warning. The most orthodox avowals of faith have no value in the eyes of God if they are not translated into concrete obedience to his will. Let me paraphrase that. Bonhoeffer is saying that you can know all the right things and it means nothing. One may with his lips loudly profess his faith in God and even invoke Jesus as Lord yet deny him by thoughts, words, and acts. Jesus says the correct doctrine Incredible zeal and spectacular displays of spiritual power prove nothing. 
But pay attention to this. Because it's not just a few. Jesus says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Well, how do I know? How do I know if, if I'm in line for rejection or entrance into the kingdom? So let's do this. I want you to jump over to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And I want you to look at a section that's called the Beatitudes. You see, the one who does the will of the Father is living a life that conforms to the character of the kingdom. And we see that character here in the Beatitudes. So look at verse 3. Are you poor in spirit? Do you recognize that you bring nothing to the table that God needs? And he has everything that you need. Look at the next one. Mourning. Do you mourn over your sin? After that, meekness. Are you meek? Do you submit yourself to God's word and God's will? After that, Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you pursue what is right in the same way that you would pursue food and drink if you were famished? Are you merciful when you're wronged? Do you seek to repay evil for evil? Or do you overcome evil with good? Because that is mercy. Are you merciful? Are you pure in heart? Does your heart have divided loyalties in its relation to God? Is there pure, unmixed devotion to Him? Are you a peacemaker to the best of your ability? In the Christian community, in this family here at Edgewood, do you contribute to the peace of the body? And last, are you persecuted for your obedience to God? Friends, when we look at the Beatitudes, quite frankly, when we look at five, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I'm just going to tell you, the appropriate response at the end of the Sermon on the Mount is for you and me to look at this teaching from Jesus and to say, I can't do this. I can't do this. I need you, Jesus. That's the response. That's where Jesus wants us that we would drop to our knees And say, Christ, this is impossible unless you supply the power for me. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the good news is, Jesus doesn't leave us there. 
He says, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see, the, the person who does the will of the Father doesn't do it to try and earn salvation. It's impossible to earn salvation. No, the person who does the will of the Father does it as a result of their salvation. That's why we need Jesus. Because it's impossible to earn salvation. He lived the sinless life that we couldn't live. Died the death on the cross that we should have died. Was buried and rose again. And that makes it possible for us to be made right with God. So when you place your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, your sins are transferred to Christ's account. And his righteousness is transferred to you so that when God looks at you, he sees his son's righteousness in place of your sinfulness. So here's the reality. We don't have to remain, remain where we're at. Jesus offers us an opportunity to repent, to turn away from lawlessness and toward the will of the Father. If you want it. So friends, true disciples, they walk on the narrow way. They are on guard against false prophets. And they do the will of the Father. And Jesus closes his sermon now with a story that most of us are no doubt familiar with. Look at verse 24 of chapter 7. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Jesus' close is a reminder that true discipleship involves action. You see, in Jesus' story, there are two people who both heard the Sermon on the Mount. And following the teaching, both men set out to do the same thing build a house. One man set out to build a house and considered the foundation. This man is considered wise. The wise man built his house on a rock. But don't think of like a large boulder. Think of bedrock. The other man built his house on sand. Now, he didn't intentionally go out looking for sand to build on. It's just what he happened to build on. That man is considered foolish. By the way, the English word that we get from the Greek word that's used here for foolish is moron. So the homes are built. And now both homes encounter storms that involve rain, floods, wind, all things that would be common to that part of the world. The wise man's house doesn't fall. Why? Because of the foundation it's built on. 
The foolish man's house falls. And the Bible says, and great was the fall of it. Said another way, the house is decimated to such a degree that it is beyond repair and no longer recognizable. Don't miss this. It's not the sunshine. It's the storm that reveals whether the house is built on the true foundation. So friends, is your Christianity built on sand or on the bedrock of Jesus Christ? See, the wise man hears the words of Christ and obeys. The foolish man still hears the words of Christ, but ignores them and is eventually decimated by his willful, sinful ignorance. So what do we, what do, we do with today's message? The first piece of application has to be whether or not you know Jesus See, friends, Jesus gives us a dire warning. Not everyone who says they know him knows him. Not everyone who says they speak on his behalf speaks on his behalf. The question that you have to settle is, do you know the Jesus of the Bible? Anything else is a false God whose path leads to destruction. Christ offers you eternal life if you're willing to submit to God's word and God's will. So are you willing to follow and obey King Jesus the rest of your days? You have to settle whether or not you know Jesus. That's the first thing. And we can settle that when we close here today. Second, if your involvement in Christian community is attending only the worship service, let me challenge you to go deeper. I invite you to connect with Pastor Tim or Pastor Kyle and discover more about the discipleship journey that over 80 people have either gone through or are a part of here at Edgewood. So maybe you're not ready for the one-on-one discipleship piece. I invite you to join a Saturday afternoon, a Sunday morning, or a weeknight growth group. And maybe you'd say, there's not a, a growth group that has what it is that I'm looking for is doing what, or is doing what I think a growth group should do. Pray about starting one. Don't wait for the opportunity to come to you. You go chase it. There's no doubt, friends, we need more growth groups. So connect with Pastor Tim and just see what a growth group could shape up to look like if you're wanting to start one from scratch or a growth group that you could join. Grab some people that you really enjoy being around. Start a growth group with them. Be on the lookout for false prophets. This is the next one. Not everyone with a book, a TV show, let me, let me rephrase this, not everyone with a Christian book, a Christian TV show, a Christian radio show, or a Christian podcast is worth your time and attention. Read your Bible. 
so that you too can discern false teaching and not get sucked in by teaching that may look and sound biblical, but after further examination is anything but. I started a, uh, a book last night called uh, Core 52, a 15-minute daily guide to build your Bible IQ in a year. It's written by a guy named Mark Moore. Let me just tell you, because there's uh, uh, just the positive impact of reading your Bible. So let me, let me just share this with you. He says, the positive impact of Scripture on individuals, families, and society has been proved time and time again. One study involving, get this, 100,000 people over eight years showed dramatic results. This, re- this research showed that those who engage in the Bible four or more times a week, experienced far less destructive behavior. 62% less drunkenness, 59% less pornography use, 59% less sexual sin, and 45% less gambling. These results were not from guilt or manipulation, but were rather the mark of personal transformation. The positive message of Scripture allowed individuals to reduce bitterness by 40%, destructive thoughts by 32%, isolation by 32%, and an inability to forgive by 31%. It reduced loneliness by 30%. Friends, clearly, in addition to helping identify false prophets, there are some great benefits to spending time in God's Word. So friends, a true disciple is someone who walks on the narrow way, is on guard against false prophets, and does the will of the Father. Are you a true disciple? John Newton is the author of the hymn Amazing Grace. He said this, If I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some I had not thought, of, thought to see there. Second, to miss some I had thought to meet there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. Don't base your salvation on lip service or lifestyle. Base it on total surrender to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. And we pray, God, that you would take these words and we would see clearly how they apply to our lives. God, we pray that you were worshipped during this time in the Word and during this service. God, we pray that you would show us what our next steps are. And for some listening in this moment, the next step is to place their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And so, Lord, I pray that in this moment that they would pray, Heavenly Father, I have sinned against you, and my sin separates me from you. I need a Savior. There's nothing I can do to save myself. I need Jesus Christ. And so in this moment, I place my faith in Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of my sins. And I make him Lord of my life, and I will follow him the rest of my days. 
Father, for some of us here, we've already done that. And, and so, Father, for us, the, the temptation is to realize that, that or to, to become frustrated by the bumpiness of the narrow way and to covet over all that the wide way offers and has. And so, Lord, I, I pray, God, that through your power, through your strength, we would stay on the narrow way. God, that we would, um, despite its bumpiness, that we would persevere. God, that we would encourage others who may also be discouraged on the, the narrow way with us. God, that we would seek out others who are also on the narrow way. And God, that we would pursue discipleship opportunities with them or in other settings. But remind us that we are not to do the Christian life alone. It's too hard. It's too hard. And so, Father, we just pray, God, that there would, uh, for those of us who need community, God, that community would form and that we would seek it out. God, we just uh, uh, thank you again for this time and the word. God, we pray, help us to be on guard against false teachers. God, the temptation that every single one of us in this room is going to face tomorrow morning when we wake up, or even to go throughout the day, is to not spend time with you. We're all going to face it. Oh God, we need your power to jump into your word and to spend time with you, whether that be morning, afternoon, or night, or throughout the entire day. God, help us to not succumb to the idea that we don't need to spend time with you. We need you. So, Father, we, we turn to you for that help as weak creatures. God, I, I just pray that, uh, God, you would use this message again to draw us closer to you. We would leave this place looking more like your son. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.